in the darkness of a winter's eve baby jesus came to earth in the stillness here creation sing of the little baby's birth born in the manger the Savior love me so. He left his throne for Calvary. He came to earth for me. I have nothing fit to give a king, but I long to do my part. All my treasure I will gladly bring, for I give to him my heart. Born in a manger, Could the Savior love me so? He left his throne for Calvary. He came to earth for me. Children's Church. <clears throat> okay, our text is going to be in Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. We started out last Sunday evening with a message from this text, and we're going to continue on through, the, through part of the rest of the chapter here. Hebrews chapter number 10, and our main verse is going to be in verse number 19. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he had consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw nigh with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Let's go and open up in a word of prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son, and I thank you for how much it costs you, and uh, Lord... Uh, Want to t don't want to take that lightly, and Father, this, this text here gives us an application of your birth and what it means to our lives and how we should live because of it, and I just pray that you'll 
Give me clarity of thought as I try to communicate your truth. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday evening, we preached from the beginning part of Hebrews chapter number 10. And in Hebrews 10, our key verse really here is found in verse 5, which says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. And so we're keying in on that phrase, when thou comest into the world, which talks about what? The birth of Jesus Christ, right? This is about the incarnation. That's the technical term that we use for the birth of Jesus Christ. But the question we were asking on Sunday night was, why did Jesus have to be born as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago? Why didn't he come as a ghost, okay? Or a spirit, or an animal, or any, any other thing? Why couldn't he have just come the way he was, right? Why was Jesus born as a baby? And so the author of Hebrews develops the answer to that in the first section. And basically, in summary, it's this. All the good things that you have done, all the works, all the sacrifices you could ever bring to try to earn your salvation are worthless. They cannot give you salvation. You can be a good kid. You can go to church. You can give money to the poor. You can be nice. And it's not going to get you to heaven. And, and I talked about how a lot of times when we think about um, salvation, we think of a scale, a giant cosmic scale. And our good deeds and our bad deeds are on each side of that scale, right? And we think, if I just have enough good that it outweighs the bad, then I'll be able to get to heaven, right? That's how most of us think, even if we wouldn't say it, that's the way that we live our lives. And yet that's not how it works. The best illustration of this is our legal system, right? Okay, if you go out and you murder somebody, are they going to let you go just because you are nice to people the rest of your life, or the, your, your whole life, or because you fed the poor, or you, Brother Dan, you probably could give me the answer, would they let you go, let you, let you get off with murder if you had done, if you just taken care of the poor and done all these good things beforehand? Okay, so they are not, they're not just going to let you go because you were good all that other time. All those good deeds that you do, they don't erase the bad. It's impossible. In fact, that's what the text says. It is impossible. Um, actually, let's, let's find the verse here. So it says, um, verse number three and four, okay? This is talking about the sacrifices that they would bring in the Old Testament, trying to atone for their sins. It says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. And now here's the reason why they had to do it every single year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Good deeds, sacrifices, worship, coming to church, it doesn't eliminate the, the sin that's in your life. It cannot do it. That's what the author was arguing in the, in the first part of this text. And that is why Jesus had to come and be born as a baby because those sacrifices were worthless. They didn't take care of sin. They didn't purge the conscience. They didn't, they didn't accomplish your salvation. But there was a sacrifice that was needed, right? We are all guilty for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, right? That is all of us. Everyone in this room, we are sinners before God. And the wages of sin is death. We all deserve 
judgment. In fact, Hebrews in chapter 9 says uh, that as it is appointed unto man once to die, we will all die. But what comes after that? The judgment, right? That's where we are. That's what we deserve. And the judgment is not something you're going to get out of. The punishment for our sins is death, but it is the second death, which Revelations describes as an eternity in the lake of fire. That is the second death, and that is the punishment for our sins. And so a sacrifice had to be made to accomplish our salvation. And that sacrifice, according to Hebrews, was a bodily sacrifice. Jesus Christ came. He was born in a manger so long ago. Is that how the words go? Okay, so born in a manger so long ago. But why was he born? Why a baby? Because he would grow up one day, he would live a perfect life, and he would die physically on a cross for my sins and for your sins. They would beat him, they would hang him on the cross, and he would die in place of, our, in place of us, basically taking the punishment that we deserve. But we know Jesus Christ was, was, was killed, he was buried, but he rose again the third day, triumphant, victorious over the grave. And that is why Jesus needed a bodily, and, and because he had to die for our sins. He had to bodily pay the, the penalty for our sins. He had to sacrifice himself. And so that's the purpose for the incarnation. That was the whole message on Sunday evening. Today, though, we are going to be looking at the application for the incarnation. So Jesus came as a baby. He died physically for our sins. What does that mean for us today? And so if we turn to our text in verse number 19, there's a couple things I want to point out about this verse here that lead us into our applications here. But verse number 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of of Jesus Christ. Notice the word therefore. Okay, therefore is telling us this is the application of what I have just told you. Because Jesus came and bodily died for your sins, because you could not pay your, the penalty for your sins, therefore do this. Okay? Having therefore brethren. Brethren is also a key word because he is talking to Christians, right? He is talking to Christians. Because Jesus Christ has sacrificed himself and made the way for us to enter into heaven. He has paid the sacrifice once for all for us. We can have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, by a new and a living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. In the Old Testament, people didn't have access to God. They had to come through a priest. The priest had to offer sacrifices, but only one man once a year could go into the holy place where God's presence was to be found. They didn't have access in the Old Testament. But Jesus Christ, through his bodily sacrifice, has opened up, according to this verse, a new and a living way. And what is that new and that living way? According to the text, it's his flesh. The fact that he died on the cross for our sins is the new and the living way. And because we now can go into the presence of God, how should we as believers live our lives? So we're going to be looking at three applications to this idea 
of the incarnation and the death of Christ. How does this apply to our lives according to the text? Um, starting in verse number 22, we get our first application here. It says, because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for your sins, first of all, we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We have access to God. By being saved, I can go into the very presence of God. I can talk to him. I can communicate with him. I can enjoy the relationship with him. I don't have to go through a priest. I don't have to sacrifice a lamb. I don't have to feel shut out from God. I have access to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the first two words in this verse are, let us. Okay, these are encouragements. They're not commands. They're encouragements. He's saying, because of this, I encourage you, take advantage of this, uh, this privilege that you have as a believer. He's pleading with them to do it. And the first thing he's pleading with us to do is to draw near, to draw near. Because Jesus cleared the way for us by his sacrifice, we can draw near to God. We have access to him. Okay? As Christians, we have this luxury, and yet, how often do we take this for granted? Right? I think of uh, a best illustration of this is an old married couple. Sorry, if you're an old married couple in here, and this applies to you, no, okay. So, but how often do you get old with somebody, and you begin to take them for granted? Right? How often do you tell your wife, I love you, when, you're, when you've been married for 40 years? You might think, I told her 30, no, 40 years ago, I, and that's, that should be enough, right? I've actually heard somebody say this. I told them that one time. Yeah, that, that should be enough to get me through the rest of these 40 years. Maybe you wake up every morning, and instead of saying hi, you grunt at each other. Okay, <laughs> then, you, then you go about your day because you get familiar with each other. You take for granted your relationship. How passionate are, are people who have been married for 40-some years? Honestly, I've seen, like, Dr. Childs uh, at Ambassador. He was, I don't know how old he is. Luke and Amanda aren't in here to help me out either, okay? So, but he was in his 80s when he was teaching at Ambassador, okay? And he and his wife, they had a, a passionate relationship at that age, you know? And that, so oftentimes, that's not the case, though, right? We grow cold over time being married. I've been married for 13 years, and I, I know I'm probably not as passionate about my wife as I was when I first got married, right? I don't take advantage of the privilege of the relationship that I have. And as Christians, this is how we live a lot of times. We've been, we get saved, and over time, it becomes old hat to us. We come to church because it's expected, because it's usual. We're not excited about it. We don't care anymore. I've been saved for going on now 29 years, 29 years, okay, that I've been saved. That's most of my adult, that's most of my life, period, okay, so, and, um, just to tell you a little bit about my testimony, um, I would consider myself a first-generation Christian because even though my dad got saved before me, it was like a few days, okay? We got saved in the exact same week. My family, before we became Christians, my dad was raised in an atheist's home, okay? They hated God. They didn't want anything to do with God, okay? My mom grew up in a Catholic home, okay? But it was, it was really diehard Catholic. In fact, I almost didn't exist because both my grandma and my mom considered becoming nuns, okay? So there would be no Jason Shirk today if that had happened. <laughs> but that's, that's my family background right there. And so when it came down to me growing up, we didn't go to church at all. 
that one time when our house burnt down and they were donating toys to us, okay? That was the only time that we went to church my entire life. We did not have this experience of being raised in a Christian home for those first beginning years of my life. But then my dad started looking for answers because he saw everything that was happening in, the, in this world, you know, and that was the 90s, not even today. And he was like, this world is going to end sometime soon because the world is chaos. And so he started to look for answers, and we rented a Christian film called A Thief in the Night. A Thief in the Night was about the rapture, how Jesus is going to come back. He's going to gather up all the believers, and then the world is going to go through a period of seven years of tribulation, judgments. There will be heat off the record. There will be plagues of locusts that will eat up things. The seas will be turned to blood. The, the sun and moon will be darkened during this time. And he believed those things. God spoke to him and he believed the truth of those things. But he still wasn't saved. My mom took the, the video back to the video stores. Believe it or not, this Christian film was in an, a Japanese movie rental place, okay, so off base. And she took it back there and returned it, and there were men passing out God's simple plan of salvation tracts. My dad took, my mom took one home to my dad who read it, and he got saved. And that Sunday was the first time I had ever been in church. I had, I had had my cousins before had previously given me a little bit of the gospel because they claimed to be Christians at the time, but I did not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was lost, and I was going to hell because of my sins. And my dad took that tract, the only thing he knew how to do, having only been saved a couple days, and he read through it, and he explained to me the gospel, how that Jesus Christ came and he died for my sins. He paid the penalty that I deserve to pay. And if I will place my faith in him, then Jesus Christ will save me. And I did that right there in the car almost 29 years ago. But again, thinking back, though, to Ephesians, the message we preached on Ephesians about dead orthodoxy, right? And how, how we sometimes we forsake our first love. We forget those days, we forget that relationship. And just like our marriages, our relationship with the Lord grows cold because we're not taking advantage of the privilege we have to draw near to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so maybe you've been saved some years. Can I challenge you with something? What are you getting out of your relationship? Is it cold, dead, and stale? Or are you taking advantage and drawing near? Maybe you say, Jason, I read my Bible and I pray, but it seems like I'm not getting anything out of it. This may be controversial to say, but I want to say this, okay? Maybe you're doing it wrong, okay? Maybe you're doing it wrong. If you're just reading your Bible to read some words on a page, go read Shakespeare, okay? If you're just going to read the words on a page to get it done with, you're doing it wrong. That's all there is to it. If you're praying... And God is a soda machine that you put your coins into just to get something from him. You're doing it wrong. He is a real living person, and we can have a relationship with him. We can draw near to him. We can talk to him, and he can communicate to us through his word. And you seriously need to ask yourself, if you're not getting anything out of your relationship with the Lord after 30-some years walking with the Lord, there has to be something wrong. Wake up. Realize that. You have access. You can have that relationship. God's not standing behind a curtain saying, 
I don't want anything to do with him. Or you need to work harder to make this relationship work because I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's not God. He's not hiding from you like that. He wants relationship with you. And as a Christian, we have the privilege to draw near, to approach to him, to come into his presence, but we don't take advantage of it. How many of you even read your Bibles every day? I mean, I don't want you to do it out of legalism, out of just to get it done, but if you're not even doing that, you're not taking advantage of the privilege that you have, period. That's it. You're not taking advantage of it. If you're not praying, you're not taking advantage of the relationship because you're not even trying. Imagine waking up and not even talking to your wife all day long. And then you get up the next day and do the same thing again. And before you know it, it's Sunday, and you haven't even talked to your wife the entire week. Some people live that way, okay? So, but that's how we live with God. We don't take advantage of our privilege to draw near to him. And, and this is how this all ties back to the incarnation. Think about what it cost Jesus Christ to give you that access God didn't just wake up someday and say, you know what, I'm forgiving all your sins, you now have access to me. No, the way that you got access was because Jesus Christ died for your sins. That cost him. God didn't have to leave heaven, be born, a, be born of a virgin, and come and die for your sins. He gave up the riches of heaven, the glories of heaven, according to Hebrews. He gave up those things to come down and to die for your sins. And we treat it like it doesn't matter. We've let our relationships grow stale and grow cold and grow dead. So the first privilege we have here is that we have access to draw near to God. But notice it says here, draw near with a true heart, with sincerity. How many of us fake our relationship because we think other people are looking? Or we want to feel good about ourselves? And we're not true, we're not real, we're not sincere, we're not authentic in our relationship with God. Now, here's something for you. You can't come to draw near to God sincerely if you don't even know Jesus Christ as your Savior. For you, it's just a game. You have to know Jesus Christ as your Savior to come to him sincerely. But my challenge for the Christian here is take advantage of your relationship and draw near with authenticity, with sincerity, with truth. So let us draw near with a true heart, and then it says in full assurance of faith. We can be assured that God is not just going to kick us out of the room when we come, right? We have full assurance, but how do we have that assurance? How do we have that confidence? It's of faith. Because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we know that we can come before God and we can have a relationship with him. So we are told to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of, our, of faith because having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's sim symbolism there, referencing back the Old Testament sacrifices, but it's saying this, because Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins and your faith in him have saved you, your conscience can be clean. It is clean. It is, it is washed it is made pure before God. And so therefore, because of that, we can be confident to come before God and to draw near to him in relationship. So the first thing we're challenged here is to draw near in sincerity of, of heart, in, in full assurance of the faith. And I think of John 4, 
verse uh, 24. We've talked about this on Wednesday night when we just introduced the fact that God is a spirit. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay? And a cross-reference in the book of Hebrews. Let's go ahead and turn there to Hebrews chapter number 4. Because if you're thinking, you know this verse, most of you do. Your mind's going to go to this passage right here. It says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is boldness in our relationship with the Lord. I don't fear. I don't have to be worried that he's going to kick me out. Because it's not based on me. It's based on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ paid my penalty for me. So I have access to God and I don't have to be afraid. I can come boldly onto the throne of grace. I can receive mercy and grace to help when I need help. I can find it in Jesus Christ. And that is how I should be living my relationship. But the condition for this access to God is this. You have to be saved. You have to have faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. Otherwise, you don't have access. You are shut out still. But he is calling you. He is saying, come to me. Okay? God wants you to come. That is why he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die for our sins. So the first privilege we have is that we can draw near to God. Or the first, first application, we should draw near to God because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. The second thing is found in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. The book of Hebrews was written, much like most of the books of the Bible, to Christians who are facing persecution. But the audience was true Christians, and it also included fake Christians, much like most churches, right? How many people are there out there that say they are Christians and are not really Christians? There's tons of them, right? You meet them every day. Almost everybody in America says, I'm a Christian. But when you look at their lives, there's no evidence of it. There's no proof to it. And it's, it's, not, it's not the reality of their lives. So the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to encourage them in this persecution, don't go back to Judaism. Because those false believers, a fake Christian, when persecution comes, what are they going to do? Whatever it takes to get away from the persecution, right? I honestly think that when America goes through persecution... Many churches will shut their doors because they're full of fake Christians and fake Christians don't continue on during times of persecution. And so the author is trying to encourage the true believers to hold fast, to stand firm in spite of the persecution that they are going to face. The text actually says here that we are to hold fast the profession of our faith. Now that word in Greek, in any Greek copy that you find, is not faith. It is hope. And there is a relationship between faith and hope. But what he is saying here is hold fast the profession of our hope. Don't lose heart. Okay, He's not saying don't, don't give up on what you believe, although that has an influence on it. He is saying don't lose heart in this text. Because of the persecution that you're going to face, don't lose heart. Let us hold fast to the profession of our hope without wavering. 
okay, without hemming and hawing, like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this or not, kind of like, I won't use Mrs. Carsey's with the roller coaster rides again, but imagine you're the person who's getting in line to ride on a roller coaster, and they get up close, and they see all the dips and falls and the loops and everything, and they start saying, eh, I don't know if I want to do that anymore, right? Okay, that's wavering, okay? So don't let the hard times pull you back from the Lord. That's, that's really what this is getting at. Don't lose heart in your relationship with the Lord. Don't take a step back and cringe away from him because of what you are going to have to face. And this goes along with drawing near. Sometimes it's easier to draw near when everything is good, although I don't think that's actually the case. Um, but when bad things happen, we shrink away. We draw into ourselves at times. And so we need to not let the hard times make you pull back from the Lord. Don't lose heart. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Now, is labor and heavy laden, are those easy or hard things? They're hard things, okay? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what does he promise? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for, for why? I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus is revealing his heart right here. He's literally saying, this is my heart. I am meek and I am lowly. So we come to him because he is meek and he is lowly. And he says, you will find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So those of us who are beaten down by work or burdened by circumstances outside of our control, Jesus tells us to do what? He tells us to come. Come to him. Again, we have access, okay? Don't lose heart. Come to him. Because I am meek and lowly in heart. Christ is gentle and he is humble. He is kind and he cares. And because he cares, we should not lose heart. Not only is he kind and gentle and humble, but according to Hebrews 10, it says here, we should not lose hope because, for, he is faithful, that promised. Jesus Christ will do what he has said he will do, okay? Every promise in the Bible that Jesus has given us, we can be confident that he will do those things. And Joshua 21, verse 45 says, there, there failed not one of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel, all came to pass. Everything that he has promised, he will do. He will accomplish it because he is faithful. And faithfulness means I'm on your side. I'm fighting for you, right? If you're a husband and wife and you're faithful to your spouse, okay, you're committed to them. You're going to do what they need you to do. God is faithful to his own. He is there for us. He will do what needs to be done. He will help us through the difficult times. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. All the strength that we need to stand firm, to hold fast, to not lose heart in difficult times, is found in Jesus Christ, okay? It's not like an army of 3,000 people is coming and you're the only one to stand in their way and fight them. That's not what's going on here. All the crushing weights of the world coming down upon you, you're not standing there alone. 
God is standing there beside you to help you, to help you to stand firm. And so we should stand firm. Don't lose heart because he is faithful. He is standing there with us. So Jesus Christ has given us access to God. Let us draw near with a true heart. And because of that, we should not lose heart. We should hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Now the third thing here is found in verse 24. Because of the incarnation and the death of Jesus Christ bodily for our sins, we should consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. If you want a simple point, provoke one another. Okay, That's, that's what he's saying. Because holding fast is not always easy. It's not always easy to stand firm, to not lose heart, to not give way when the waves come crashing in on you. But God has given us a church, a body to help us. That's one of the purposes for the church right there is to help us stand firm when we don't feel like we have the strength to do so. The phrase here um, says literally when it says consider one another, it means to pay attention to one another, to be looking at our, at, to look at each other's lives. As Americans, we're so private. We think my life is my business and nobody else should get involved, right? But that's not what the church is. The church is getting involved, right? It's like a family. If you have a family member who is on drugs and they don't show up for a whole weekend for some reason, what are you going to do? You're going to go look for them. You're going to find them. You're going to get them the help that they need. If your sister runs away, okay, I've had this happen. Your sister runs away. Are you just going to sit there and play your video games? No, that's not what family is. We go and we help other people. When you see there's a problem, you have to involve yourself because you love and because you are a family. And that is the church. We are not a collection of individuals. We are a group of people. We are a family. And we are to consider, we are to pay attention to what is going on in each other's lives. If you see somebody who hasn't been to church in a month, does it ever cross your mind? Why are they not here? What's going on that caused them to skip out? Right? If you see somebody who used to be so enthusiastic and, and excited at church, and now they're, they come and they sit and then they walk out the door as soon as it's over with, do you ever ask yourself what might be going on? Maybe they lost their job, they can't pay the bills, um, I think a lot of times we, we, for, we forget something, especially during COVID. Um, when COVID hit, people were out of work for how much time? Two weeks. How do you pay your bills? How many of us even stopped to think about that question for everybody who got sick during COVID to say, how are they feeding their family? How are they taking care of themselves? Is it just a credit card? Is that what we're forcing them to do? Because we weren't paying attention. And this happened. I know it happened here. Okay, I know it happened because we aren't paying attention and we are told here to pay attention to one another. But what are we told to pay attention to? Is it just the bad things that are happening? No, actually here it's telling us to pay attention and to provoke them to good works and unto love. Not just the bad things, not just pay attention to the bad things, but to encourage them in the good things that they need to be doing. Now, provoking. You think of provoking. Provoking is a pretty negative word, right? You think of two guys walking down the street, and they're bumping into each other, and then they start getting into a fist fight. 
They provoked each other into a fight, right? But you can provoke somebody into good works, to doing good things. But how do you do that? You open your mouth. You say something, right? You encourage them. You come along and say, hey, have you thought about doing this? Or this might be a good solution to this problem. Or I've noticed that you haven't been to church in a month. Why? What's going on? How can I help you? You know, figure out what's going on and encourage them with your lips to do what is right. And it says to provoke them unto love, okay, to love the, the brothers and unto good works. What are good works? Doing good, right? Provoke each other to do good things. Christianity is not just not doing bad things. You, got, you guys know that, right? It's not just that I don't cuss, I don't swear, I don't drink, and I don't run with girls that do, okay? So that's not Christianity. Christianity is that and activity. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to do good things. I am going to help people out. Those are good works, and we should provoke one another to do those things. Verse 25 here is key, because a lot of times... This verse is taken out, uh, slightly out of context here, but it is important to tie all this together. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Most of the time when we hear this, we hear this preached on, you should never miss church. You need to be here Sunday, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And that is good. That is true. We should be here. And you could derive that from the last half of the verse. But the first part of the verse says not forsaking. What does forsake mean? It means abandoning. But here's, here's the point the author is getting at. Don't abandon the assembling of yourselves. Don't abandon church. And abandonment doesn't happen all at once. You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what? Not going to church anymore. It happens incrementally. Every person that I've seen that's dropped out of church just started skipping every now and then. They just started missing every now and then. And it started with a change in priorities, change in value. They didn't think the church mattered anymore. They didn't love the believers anymore that were in their churches. They felt disconnected from the churches, okay? And so they slowly worked themselves out the door. But he's telling them, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is. Some people had done this, okay? And again, you got, in order to understand this, you've got to understand what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Persecution's coming, and some people are leaving church altogether to avoid that persecution. As long as you don't think I'm a Christian, I don't get persecuted, right? Okay? So he's saying, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is, but, and here's the important part, exhort one another. That, this is why you need the church. The church members are there to exhort one another. They are there to provoke one another. And he says here, so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is why I, could, I think you can argue for you need to be here Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night from this. Not because I think you need to legalistically show up to church all the time, but because it's important. And he says, so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need believers. We need to be around each other. And that is a privilege that we have because we are all the family of God. We are all together in this as believers. And the only reason we have any of these rights is because Jesus Christ came. He was born in a manger 
on Christmas Day. Not really. Okay, so maybe in April. Okay, so he was born in a manger, and then he lived his life perfectly as the Son of God, and he died on a cross. Because our sins are forgiven. We are in Christ. We are made a new family. We have given given access to God. We can stand firm and not lose hope. And because of that, we should be provoking one another, encouraging one another in their walk with the Lord. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're going to go ahead and have a time of invitation. whole point of this message is, is this question. So Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. The purpose of that was to forgive me of, our, of my sins, to pay the penalty that I needed to have paid so I could be forgiven of my sins. Now, as a Christian, what does that mean to me? It means I have access. It means I don't have to lose heart. And it means I should be provoking other Christians to walk closer with their Lord every single day. So much more as you see the day approaching.